This episode of Point Shot is brought to you by BenchClears. You can now visit BenchClears.com and use promo code AREA51SENTME to get 10% off on your order. So that is any of their air mesh style tanks and shorts, all of which are NHL officially licensed product. So you can support your team all summer long with Bench Clears. Episode 25 of Point Shot is brought to you by High Stick Vodka, the double gold award-winning vodka from the heart of the Okanagan with such a smooth and clean flavor that will have you feeling like you won a cup. Order yours today at highstickvodka.com. How are we doing today, boys? Can you believe it's episode 25 of Point Shot now? I, I guess we should, or at least I should, calculate how many episodes I've, I've been on now in, uh, in total. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> Already 25. It's it's crazy since the the relaunch that we're back up there. Um, you know, it's it's awesome. I'm doing good. I'm I'm a little sleepy. Right now. Yeah, yeah, good, <laughs> good. That's a, that's better than you. You must have improved in the last five minutes. Yeah, I'm like I'm still battling to keep my eyes open a little bit, but uh, I'm doing good. I'm kicking. So, well, I think I'm I'm still like a bit of an infant here because because I think I've been for what less than 10 episodes on here so i don't know about you guys well, well i've been here for a while but yeah. <laughs> yeah. i have always been here right yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah you'll get up there hopefully it, it, it helps getting a couple reps in though eh? for sure yeah yeah so it's it's august but that doesn't mean that there's not stuff happening in canucks land uh, of course, we're recording a couple days after the, uh, well, now I'd say infamous Pedersen Swedish comments that, yeah, clearly have been overblown. And, and we were just saying, too, whenever you get a, a translated article, it always sounds a little harsher uh, than it truly is. Uh, the, the concerning point, though, of course, to me, isn't that he wants to win, because to me, that is obvious and, you know, is, is clearly the you know part that people are focusing on, but shouldn't be. To me, it was the second half of the comment that eh, was a little bit more concerning to me. Because, again, of course, I think people are, are very clear that I know or very <laughs> sure about where I stand <laughs> on this. I'm already flustered that I just have, have this sinking fear that he is pushing for a four-year deal, which would walk him right to UFA. And, and that's the only negative concern that I have from those comments 
you know, it was a real, you know, you know, we'll get a contract on this time. You know, we'll see how these couple years go. And then, and then we'll see. And, you know, again, of course, the we'll see makes it seem like he feels like he'll have quite a bit of control in there, meaning he doesn't necessarily think that he'll be a restricted free agent and still under team control. Now, again, of course, he could sign a three-year deal and then a one-year qualifying offer and then walk himself to unrestricted free agency. So, you know, that's also a possibility too. It's not like, you know, it's the four-year deal is the only disaster scenario. It's one of several. Um, but or I even think like it, a five-year deal and just buy one year of free agency. I mean, I would be okay with that, but I mean, that would also walk him to free agency where he would again have all the control, right? It, it absolutely would. Five years though, you know, again, I, I, I like five years. I, I like four it better than three and four. Yeah. Well, that's yeah, yeah. Four is clearly sure. still the worst. I'm, I'm just yeah. going to think, do I prefer it? to a three-year deal though, because of that fear of a qualifying offer and a shorter window, you know, again, of course, hopefully with a five-year deal, we're getting still at, pro- you know, hopefully a number, I don't know, around eight to eight, five on, on a five-year deal. Uh, so, you know, that makes, you know, a little bit of sense because of course we can probably still fit him in now and longer term. I, I think though, the other thing that we also have to factor in here is, is Quinn Hughes and what the plan is with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, of course, you know, we've been as, uh, you know, as teams wanting to have good contracts, we've enjoyed uh, that there's really been no inflation that we've ever seen uh, on, you know, big defenseman contracts until now. Uh, And my fear, of course, is if we bridge Quinn, that in three years, we've seen several more of these large, big money deals to top defensemen. He develops that defensive part of his game because I still am of the belief that he will be a very good two-way defender, not just an offensive guy. And once he demonstrates that ability on the ice consistently to actually play good defense, then that AAV goes up, not not one, maybe two, maybe $3 million per year. And to me, that becomes a massive concern moving forward with our cap structure the way it already is and trying to fit in you know, the Bessers, you know, in my opinion, we'll need to have replaced Miller by that time. But of course, we've got Garland on the books. Hoglander and Pub Colson are going to be on non-entry level contracts at that point. You know, we, (laughs) those those two, three million (laughs) dollars are are very important to us. As we, you know, all know as Canucks fans, the last three years having to pay this stupid Luongo recapture penalty. So, that's that's where I'm at with this is I still think we need to go two or three years with with Pedersen and then look to get the longer term deal done with uh, with Quinn Hughes. We are now joined by I'm going to call him friend of the show. Aww. One of my my favorite writers, <laughs> uh, Patrick Johnson. How you doing, buddy? What up? Just off the line with Ryan Johnson. Nice. Well, before well, first cool. I want to congratulate you on, on joining up with S&P. You know, you, know, uh, that's, you know what's funny about that is that I was on I was an exclusive for the other place for a while, but no one seemed to ever pick up on that. So, I don't <laughs> <know>. <laughs> well, and and uh, you know, again, of course, uh, maybe at least I'm I'm willing to admit my bias when it's a local run show. Like, of course, I, we've all talked about you know the fallout from 10:40 initially was terrible, but now I can't help but smile that we've got the team. That we've got, you know, the van cast yeah. and, and, you know, Tom with the athletic. And I'm sure in September he's going to launch uh, something pretty special. And then again, of course, this 
just Goliath that has become, uh, you know, Sakaris and Price with you and Jay Pat and, and everyone yeah. else, that's going to be pretty incredible. And, you know, I, I don't know, other than maybe Toronto, does anyone have like as great local coverage as, as we do? I think we're pretty spoiled in this market right now. Well, I would like to give a shout out to the Illegal Curve Hockey Show in Winnipeg because I've been a, a occasional appearance guy there. And those boys, I mean, those guys work hard. They had they were caught up in the, the collapse of the TSN radio empire as well because of, Winnipeg doesn't have a sports radio station now either. Um, and, but they've managed to carry on and they're running kind of more of a YouTube show a bit, 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 bit in line, I guess, with sort of a mix of what all the guys out here are doing, but no, you're right. I mean, it is, it is interesting to see it's, it's, um, you know, it's a different times are changing, you know, that 1040 was a relatively successful station, but the future of AM radio is, you know, not long for the world. Um, that was a big part of the story. Bell just had no interest in carrying on with that, which sucks because in the end, as a community, we lose. Um, you know, I, I do have some sort of. I think it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see what happens with all these guys, whether there's sort of an amalgamation, kind of going back a little bit closer. But in the end, the future is online. Um, you know, and I th I would think it's fair to say that the the you know it's going to be interesting to see what happens with 650. Like those guys were really good to me. Don't get me wrong. Um, like the, they, you know, the, there was there's some really good people there. And, you know, it's tough to see sort of, sort of how Rogers has treated the people that are actually trying to do the work. Um, and, uh, you know, so, but in the end, what, what um, I think what Matt and Blake are trying to do, I think it's certainly, you know, and, and as well, Rick and Donnie, um, you know, it is, it is to make them, how to put this, you guys have this, you know, you guys are podcasts, you guys are many ways, like, kind of where things are kind of one direction things are going and obviously podcasts are like you know they're they're easy to put together they're sort of low barriers to create um the challenge of course is that it's a massive marketplace and you have to find your own bit and you know punch through that um but certainly compared to like you know five years ago um the opportunity that's available just to create simple you know from creating a simple podcast is incredible um, so then to sort of take that to the next level and, you know, in, in the professional realm, it is a challenge that the baseline once was terrible. The baseline's gotten better, but the baseline isn't, you know, something that can be sort of an ongoing sustainable professional enterprise. You need more. And so what they're trying to do, I think is really interesting. They're taking a lot of the things they learned. I had some really interesting chats with Rob Gray, um, you know, in, in the wake of 1040 falling away, um, you know, Rob Gray, of course, used to run 1040, but just, you know, a really interesting thinker in terms of how all this stuff can be packaged and presented, even going back, you know, a decade. Um, and some of the lessons they learned in terms of how to engage and how to move towards your audience um, in, in as people's uh, consumption of, of uh sports news in particular shifts sports analysis shifts um yeah so yeah, like i said it's just interesting is we'll see where it goes i mean they certainly have the energy and the enthusiasm and and the, the charisma and the personas to make it work um you know in the end it becomes a question of sort of technology and market and 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 understanding kind of the new realities of where things are at so yeah thanks and and they just got an app which I admittedly, I it's one of the times I felt old. Is there's been a couple of times I've tried to walk onto their live show and struggled yeah. with it and gone, 
I'm yeah, 34. I, shit. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think that's yeah, right. And I think that's still a reality. Is that I, I, you know, I, you should be able to put it on your home speaker, right? And that's that is that's you know, sort of just you have to figure out how to make all that work. Um, that that's not the everything. It's not the be all and everything because we've seen we literally have seen how like this is why we're at where we're at with AM radio because you know. I mean, I wrote a little bit in, in, in the skate last spring in the wake of 1040, but the, the, this is literally a technology story. You know, 20 years ago when we were all kids, we had radios in our kitchen, right? And you'd put on whatever. Um, nobody has a radio in their kitchen anymore. And it's, <laughs> it's weird because it was literally like that. And a lot yeah. of it has to do with decisions made 15 years ago as mp3 players started coming out and things that had docks for iP um, iPods and things like that and they made a choice not to include um, AM antennas anymore because AM antennas are incredibly long and you had to spool them up and all this stuff and they're just like we don't do this anymore and car you know I mean even cars cars can do it because you can turn the car into the antenna and that's the only reason many ways why AM radio still exists is because you have um, you have cars that can pick up the signal. Nobody else is picking up the signal. Nobody's sitting at home putting their tuner on anymore. Um, and so we've we've lost that. We've shifted finally now towards sort of the, the idea of the home speaker, but like people have lost the habit. So now, and this is the S&P thing, is now you're trying to create a new habit. And Matt, Blake, and I talked quite a bit about this when they were first launching the show, is that, you know, I mean, Matt, I think it was pointed to Bill Good, you know, the retired, Longtime CKNW radio host um, and, and news news anchor on on for those of us who are really old uh, on TV um, and Bill basically tweeted out and said, "Guys, teach us how to do this." And like that was part of the process is getting people. But as you said, now you need an app, even for old people like Malcolm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the worst was I had a neighbor knock on our door with a bottle of wine yesterday, saying, "Hey, we're gonna have a party tomorrow night." If we have any, you know, if you have any issues with the noise, please give us a call. And I'm like, shit, I'm now the guy that's a concern to break up a party. Like Alan, <laughs> Alan took a little bit to recover from, I'll, I'll admit. Yeah. Yeah. So, you said you even worse, yeah, you were yeah, invited. Yeah. That's no right. invite <laughs> coming. I, I should have showed him my beer pong table, the man cave. I, maybe, maybe I would have scored an invite, but no, just please call us if you have a problem with the noise. Oh, it took a, it took a minute for me to accept that bottle of wine. I'll admit. I like that it's a call to and not a text. Like they, they figured you were old enough that you would prefer to just phone them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he, he wrote his number on the bag. You know, like it was a cute little message. I was just like, like, come on. <laughs> so you were just on the phone. PJ was just on the phone with RJ. Yeah. Uh, and of course, he seems like he's been a busy man. Busy, busy boy. And yeah. Um, I'd love to hear, of course, you know, if there was anything interesting on that phone call that you wouldn't mind mentioning. And, uh, of course, how him and Benning work together. Because, admittedly, I kind of had thought, you know, it was Jim Benning making some of these signings on the AHL team. But it seems like it's more Ryan Johnson. And how does that collaboration work? Is that a conversation between them two? Or is that a job that Jim's actually delegated, as weird as that sentence is to say? Well, you know, I, first of all, it was, it was a big statement that they officially – Anoint, you know, reanointed him as GM of the Asbury Canucks because you know that's a role that uh, is really important. Um, 
you know, and it has evolved over the years. You know, in the old days, you know, I think back, for instance, like think back to the Manitoba Moose days when the Canucks worked with Manitoba Moose. The Moose were an independent team. Uh, they had their own GM. But they actually, the Canucks had a really good relationship with them uh, in, in the sense of they said, these are the guys we're giving you. We want them to play. And, um, and then, of course, the Jets came and took over and couldn't have the Moose there anymore. Now the Moose are a Jets affiliate. Um, and then the, the contrast of moving to Chicago Wolves. Now I know this because I was covering the Chicago Wolves for two years from remotely for Canucks Army. Um, basically, the relationship there was terrible. The Canucks were kind of left holding the bag a little bit. Um, and Chicago had been a long, I mean, this, without going too deep into history, Chicago was a long standing independent team that had been in the old IHL and the IHL had been all independent teams. So they really were used to running, used to running their own shop and they were a very successful team, but because they signed a lot of veterans, they signed a lot of kind of their own guys and kept their own shape. And so the Canucks tried to kind of glom onto that. And it, I mean, they also didn't have very good prospects in those days, but, um, it didn't work. It was a really tough go. They didn't get their guys didn't play enough. They didn't play as much as they wanted. They also had the Craig McTavish experiment. And of course, you're when you're dealing with a guy who's been in coach in the NHL, you know, often it's a challenge getting him to be motivated to not necessarily chase wins. And in the end, Mac T wanted he's like, I want to get back in the NHL. And so he coached to win and and was less was sort of more risk averse. And so you didn't see a lot of the kids playing now. I think it's doubtful many of those kids would have had gone anywhere anyway. So, you know, it's tough to say that it's because of him that they had no prospects, but it was kind of a bit of both. Um, and then in Utica, obviously, they ran their team and they ran their team for eight years and they said, this is what we want. Um, but I think there really was an important thing to, you know, give Ryan that clear title. You know, this is your your team. We are Dell. I mean, he is also the senior director of development. You know, his job is to take the kids who get drafted and deliver them to the NHL. And you know, I mean, they've, they, they, you know, that record is, let's be honest, a bit wavy. Um, they've delivered guys in the NHL. Have they delivered guys that have been successful? I think that's a different question. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, we were talking, I mean, I, I want to talk about Ash and Sautner because they, they, they announced that Sautner's coming back today. I also just talked to Sautner's agent. Um, they signed Breezeball yesterday. They added Tristan Nielsen. I think they've got um, they've added a couple other younger guys this this week, um, and I don't think they're done. By the way, um, at least that was the sense I got from Ryan. He wouldn't say, but but I think they've got a few more younger players that are looking at. Um, anyway, but you know, basically his point is is that I mean, for one thing, Sautner's agent was like, I think we this team may have the highest paid defense core in the AHL at this point because they've got a couple of guys like Brad, you know, whether it's Brad Hunt or all you Levy, and I assume it's going to be Brad Hunt. You know, there's a guy that's on a there's the guy that's on a like an NHL deal, right? Like they've got guys that are making any big salaries um, in the minors. And um, let me just pull up and see who else. There, you know, it's the Brady Keepers on an NHL deal um, or. Um, I'm just trying to see who else think about, you know, they, they've added some guys that are on some pretty decent tickets. So, um, you know, it, it, it is, it's a team that, you know, they clearly are trying to make a statement. They want it to be good. They know they need to win to draw fans, right? Like that's an important thing here that they want. And they also, I think, recognize that there's probably going to be some movement back and forth, um, you know, whether it's because of injuries or, you know, other transactions or whatever. So it's sort of like, Here's some of our NHL guys as well. Like you'll see them here. 
so there's sort of that aspect too. Um, but the Sautner thing, I mean, the Sautner is a guy that they know well, that he knows the organization well. One of the things that his agent told me, um, you know, that it's a multi sort of layered reason why he's coming back. He's only coming back on an AHL deal, um, which means he could sign, you know, if things are going well, he could sign an NHL deal like that and then be in the NHL. Um, and that could be any team. That's not just the Canucks. So he's kind of, he's betting on himself a little bit. But there's also the factor of like basically, I guess he and his wife had a had a kid last spring, but because Sautner was in this crazy bubble situation, because he kept, you know, don't forget, he was here, then he was in Winnipeg, then he was back here. You know, it was it was just a I mean, he didn't he barely played. It was a crazy season for him. But basically he couldn't be with his family. And and so that was a factor. Like now he can actually be here. He can be 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 with his, you know, that part um, of his life. And then, and then third, you know, I mean, it's, it's challenging. Um, it, I, I think the Canucks, there is a, it, it, it depends on how things shake out, but there is a bit of a desire to have, I mean, they know Sautner is going to be an important leader for them. Um, you know, he, he's an option for that, for a captain to be there. Um, it all kind of depends. I mean, they, they have to sort of settle on their roster. And of course there's the AHL veteran rules and they have to think a little bit more how things shake out at a training camp. Um, so the agent basically said, well, you know, that's sort of the indication they got from the team. RJ was a little more like, slow down. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, I don't want to say we didn't promise him something like that, but I also have to be careful on, on um, you know, just the rules of the, the roster rules and, and the realities. So, you know, it's clear they're like, you, you know, RJ said, listen, we know everything. We know what kind of professional he is. You know, Sautner is an example of a player they signed as a free agent who has played some NHL games, you know, perhaps a bit unfortunate not to have played more because of circumstance. I mean, I was at that game in his one game in, um, I think it was at 1920 or 1819. Let me get his numbers up here. Uh, 18, 1920, he played one game for the Canucks. And I was at that game. It was in San Jose and Brendan Dillon like knocked him out, but it was a dirty play. And in classic NHL fashion, they didn't even care. But anyway, so, so I was there for Sardis one game, but he would have played more that season if he hadn't if he hadn't suffered that concussion. I think, um, you know, because he's a reliable guy that that Travis Green knew well from from Utica. Um, he got you know it wasn't a fluke that he played seventeen games in twenty eighteen nineteen. Um, you know, so it's it's a guy that he is a bit he I mean as prospects go, I mean he's twenty seven right like this is who he is. He's not a prospect anymore. He's a veteran player, um, but you know. I like those guys. Those guys are interesting. He's a, you know, he's he's a handy player, and so I want to talk a bit about that and just sort of the context of of him and Brisebois and a little bit, a little bit, and then Tristan Nielsen, you know, because they announced it right before we talked, and I, you know, a guy who's you know who I had actually interviewed two years ago at the beginning of the nineteen twenty season for for the Giants, pinch hitting on some Giants stuff, and he, you know, a, a, a bit of a spark plug kind of player. Um, a player who Giants coach Michael Dyke told me at the time, um, you know, not only did he bring energy, but he, you know, had a leadership quality to him. And that's the kind of player in the end that, that, I mean, not just the Canucks, I think all NHL teams are looking for now, right? I mean, you want, you got to have the talent, of course, right? But there is a need to have uh, a desire and a, a sort of uh, ability to sort of, you know, double down. And double down on yourself, buckle down, get the job work, get the job done, and understand that uh, you know, especially when you're, you know, let's be honest, a fringe player, that that 
there's work to be done that you may have been one of the top players on your junior team, but now everybody's a top player. And there's a reason why you are down the list and you need to you know, have a bit of humility about that. And uh, so, yeah, Nielsen's a guy like that. You know, they, they signed, um, they signed a couple other guys this week who, you know, fit a similar profile. So yeah, it's going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be an interesting team. I think uh, everyone seems to think it's going to, it's going to do well. So. And, and these are Ryan Johnson decisions. Like his, you know, Ryan oh, right. Johnson's well, selected. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting one. Like, I think things have evolved a little bit. Um, going back a couple of years, scouts and most of, and um, most I believe collegiate hockey, but Pat Conacher, um had been uh, essentially tasked with finding all the depth players in Utica. And, you know, anybody that played for Utica was paid by the Canucks, even on the AHL deals. Um, but the Canucks kind of had a trust factor there. Conacher now, like I said, has a new role. And, yeah, it's on guys like Ryan Johnson uh, to fill out, you know, fill out the roster and figure out who's there. And, you know, I, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a list, of course, and, like, you know, the – you know the Canucks management. We, I mean, I think years ago we saw Jim Benning had his had his chart board of all the depth charts in the NHL, and that's still how he would function. Um, but yeah, there's sort of an expectation. I mean, it is a bit of a delegation there because there is an expectation. Okay, we pick these players. Now you guys figure out the rest. And when it comes to setting up your your AHL roster, you know, like you've got to know they're not in the end. You know, a lot of these guys are kind of around the edges. Um, you know, it's a bit of a collaborative sense. You know, I mean, the, 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 some of these guys have been at Canucks development camps in the past too, right? So, um, it's 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 it's. I would say, you know, RJ's obviously got a big hand in, it, and these are guys that he's advocating for. Um, but to say it's this guy, I think, you know, like any prospect, it's it's challenge. You know, it's it's dangerous to go down that. Well, he's the only person who saw it because that's just not true. Like, you know, they in the end. Um, you know, even po I mean, Judd Brackett was very big on obviously having a collaborative approach. That was Trevor Linden's approach. Um, those guys are obviously gone now, but I think there's still an element to that kind of process. I mean, it's not like it's not like I mean, I think there are examples of players where we can say, well, you know, that is that is a gent Benning type player. That's a wise broad type player. Um, but there's plenty of other players in the in the mix who are you know, basically there's, there are other scouts or other me members of management who've been advocates for, and in the end they've said, I think we should get this guy and management has to sign off on it. So, um, it's not, it's not like Ryan Johnson's operating all alone on this, I guess is the way to put it. Right. So, so essentially he would make the decision, identify the player, negotiate the contract and then get Benning's approval that that's, you know, in line with their vision. I think that's probably a little too linear, but, but no, okay. you're, I'm you know, obviously trying to simplify it. Yeah, I, I, you know, I mean, he's saying this is the kind of guy we need, and we should be looking into this. I don't know how the, I mean, right? Chris Gear deals with the big contracts. I don't know what involvement he has with the smaller contracts. Um, you know, but but in the end, like you know, I mean, especially AHL deals, like they're they're not exactly that complicated. You know what I mean? Like, there's a few guys. I mean, they did sign a slew of guys this summer. It was an unusual summer in that sense. Um, you know, just because they got so many guys all at once. That's not something that often happens. 
but uh, you know, so so uh, you know, they they would have brought you know in the end they bracketed you know they bracketed certain players for certain numbers, and like I said, it's not that complicated. Some of the guys are going to be you know Brad Hunt's going to be like, listen, I've been in NHL. You want me to come play? I'd love to come home, but I want an NHL deal. And that was clearly, you know, that he's a guy that has been on two ways in the past, but that was clearly was the price to bring him in. Um, and he got it, or at least that was the demand. I mean, they could have, I'm sure they could have tried to grind him some more, but in the end, that's the number they got him at. And, you know, it is, it is one of those ones, like after a year of austerity and not spending money on anything, you know, it is notable that they have spent some money on the AHL club this year, more than they maybe have in the, ever in the past. Um, and some of that's forced because they need players. <laughs> and some I was going to say, is, man. You know, I think ownership's desire to sort of be seen as, well, at least we're spending money in this. And you're like, eh, yes, They had the I highest so. paid player in the AHL last year with Sven Berchi. Very yeah, true. Uh, <laughs> spending money on, on bad players or on, on AHL players is, is kind of his team's MO. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I, I think there is obviously – you're able to take that money and split it what four ways and all of a sudden you you know what I mean like that there that is something that shouldn't be lost in this and that they are actually spending their money more efficiently um, on their AHL club than they did in the past um, and you know, in, just... the end, in the end it's hard to ignore the holistic question which is that they still have a lot of big contracts and a lot of big bets and if they're going to be a playoff team which they really believe they are. Um, you know, those bets are going to have to pay off, just about all of them. So let's get into some of those big bets because it's been a minute uh, since we've got to talk to you. And, of course, uh, a whole lot has happened as far as big bets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so maybe I, I still have to ask your initial uh, impressions of, of the big trade. Uh, you know, did you like it? What What would you say to, you know, someone like me who is worried that we're seeing the same sort of moves over and over again and, doesn't have a lot of faith that Oliver Ekman Larson is a you know top pairing or even a top four defenseman, especially you know over the next six years. There's a lot of different things. Um, if you go on the on the question of who got the best player, which for many years has been sort of how do you assess a trade? It's not even about Ekman Larson. They got Connor Connor Garland. Connor Garland is the best player in this trade, and now he's a Vancouver Cup. So that's good. Um, their forwards are without a doubt better. Um, they actually have some decisions to make. Um, you know, obviously, if they'd kept Tyler Toffoli, it's a different question because, you know, losing Toffoli forced them into sort of a lot of make do choices. And one of them was keeping Jake and saying, well, maybe Jake will finally make it in the top six while well, that did. That it was never going to work and it didn't work. Um, you know, so, so that now it's like, okay, Garland probably plays with Horvat, right? But maybe he can play with Petey and, you know, like there's, there is some options here. Maybe you can, where does Puck Colson fit in? Where, I mean, Puck Colson has to make it, let's be clear, but there's every reason to think that he's going to be a pretty useful forward almost right off the bat. And, you know, where does Hoaglander fit in? And now you've, you know, Hoaglander is the kind of guy, like he was great on the second line. Um, but you'd rather have a guy like that on the third line. It's true. I mean, this is also true of Tanner Pearson, right? I mean, that, that to me is the other dimension in all this is that it's, you know, ten, we knew Tanner Pearson's contract overvalued him already, but it clearly to me overvalues him more than ever because, like, is he really a second liner on this team? Like, should he really be in the role he's in? And, and that's not to knock 
Tanner Pearson. That's to say, what do you want your team to be, and where do you want to put put skill sets? And the um, forwards have just gotten better. Like the, the they've added to their. The well, forward. and that's what I mean. So it's yeah. interesting. It is interesting. I mean, you could see. You know, ideally, you see Pat Pearson gets pushed down. Like Pod Colson turns out to be a stud right off the bat, and you can play him with Horvat and Garland. And now Pearson's on your third line. And you're kind of okay. I mean, you're paying him too much to play on the third line, but like, it's not terrible. Um, but yeah, the OEL deal is is the real kind of. I mean, they also got out. Let's let's not forget. I mean, I'm shocked they got out from Eric's. They got out from Beagle. They got out from Roussel, who I, you know, I like. I wrote that story. I had a nice chat with, and you know, it was like we all said, lovely guy, great guy to deal with. Uh, you know, I really, you know, as, as someone who watched, I thought he had a pretty good first season here, um, despite everything, despite coming in with this, you know, probably too long contract, probably too big price point. He had a nice first season. I mean, he has the weirdest collision imaginable. Of Brendan Lemieux blow like destroys his knee, like in in. You know, and you look at it and you don't even understand, like, how he barely fell, but just you know, like, life's unfair, and um, you know, and just wasn't the same after his surgery, especially. You know, I mean, he admitted he said he came back too soon the first, the second season, and then last year, just you know, couldn't find a role. And uh, you know, it was just it was just a difficult season for everybody, you know, from top to bottom. So they got out of all three of those contracts, spectacular, like. Good for you. You you finally figured out a mess, cleaned up your own mess. But, but they got rid of draft they? picks. Yeah, well, because hold on. they got rid of draft picks, right? So you're not classic betting. That's like that's the price, and there's a huge bet, right? Like OEL mm -hmm. has had a really rough go the last few years. Um, even if you account for the fact that he played for a coach that maybe wasn't optimal in terms of how he wants to play. Um. The problem remains, and even if you ignore the fact that he's been dealing with a not great knee, he's 30. Defensemen, like, in general, like, <laughs> that's, it's, just, it's just a fact of life. It, so, it, well, ex exactly, right? And that's why, that's where I had to interject there is, you know, we, we cleaned up a $12 million cap liability by taking on a $43 million cap yeah. liability, right? So I don't see that as cleaning up our mess. Yeah, I see that no, as creating a larger mess down the road, like literally kicking the shit can down the road. I, I don't see any other way to do that. And the reason I phrase it as the OEL trade and not the Garland trade, yeah, you know, it, and, 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 the re, and the reason I keep going back to this with, with Benning is Benning is saying OEL is a top pairing defenseman. That's yeah. what he's expecting. And he has yeah. said Garland is a top nine forward. So it doesn't even realize, he doesn't even realize who the best player is he got in the deal. And, just a and one I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest maybe 18-year-old 6'2 right-handed Dylan Gunther is the best player in the trade. I'd take him. At, if I got to just pick one player out of the trade in a vacuum, that's the guy I'm taking. Yeah, I mean, you know, it is entire. We'll see in a couple of years, I guess, right? But... Yeah, it, it, there's no denying the just the specter of X Larson's contract. Like it's it's it, it is a reminder that, and it, I'm not saying this is the and clearly I don't think this is the right thing, but it also is something that exists is that in the end, the need to win and win now. I mean, this isn't just something about Jim Benning. I mean, it is obviously very much about Jim Benning because if he doesn't win, that's it. Um, but, but 
you know, in the end across hockey. And this is a, this comes down to valuation, player valuation all the time. You know, is Darnell Nurse actually a nine million dollar hockey player? Probably no. not, but now <laughs> yeah. he is. And like now teams do that, and that affects things. And you know, I mean, I, 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 I'm when I get off of you guys and finishing a story, I talked to Pat, Pat Brisson yesterday. You know, who's Elias Pettersson and and Quinn Hughes's agent, and I asked him a little bit about sort of setting the market and trying to understand where things are at. And he said, no, you you know, you can't look. And basically, I didn't. I asked about Nurse. He didn't talk talk specifically about Nurse. But but he basically said, you got to compare guys coming off ELCs. Like, that's the thing. You can't turn around and say, like, Darnell Nurse is well down the track. You know, that doesn't have quite the same effect on, on Hughes' situation right now. I mean, it will, a couple, you know, if he should, signs a bridge deal. Um, by the way, Brisson is open to a long-term deal. I mean, I don't know how you do it. But, you know, I said, are, you, are we looking at bridge? What are we looking at here? He goes, it's all still on the table. So I was like, okay, but he was honest. He said, "The longer your term you go, the bigger AAV you're going." So, anyway, that's a side point. But I, you know, I, you know, basically, the 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 mar- you know, in the end, <laughs> a certain level, seven and a half million dollar OEL. Well, compared to nine million dollar Darnell Nurse, I mean, it's it's it, it's a reminder of how stupid valuations are in this league. But it's a thing; it happens. So you know, it is it is that kind of like I need to win. And that's the yeah. that, and that's the fundamental truth in all this, which is, you know, I mean, it is, it's. There are teams obviously that are thinking ahead and saying, okay, what are, we're going to try to keep winning, and what are we going to do, and you know, what are we going to do with Brock Besser when his you know qualifying offer is seven and a half million dollars, you know, what are we going to do with twenty? What's Bo going to be after this one? Twenty eight, twenty nine. You know, like what? Are, what are we gonna? You know, is that gonna force a brutal decision from us? Um, but mo, you know, still a great deal of hockey doesn't think in those terms. They're like, can I make the playoffs this year? I think so, it's pretty clear which one of those Jim Benning is. Well, it's not just him. It's, I mean, this is clear. Like, let's be clear. It's also ownership, right? Like, mm-hmm. like that's there's a there's a reason. You know, I was sitting there thinking of, about the GMs that. Francesco Acquilini has had. And technically, Brian Burke was his first one, right? They never, like Burke, I had I interviewed Burke last season or two seasons ago um, for the Canucks 50 series that we did. And and basically, I asked him about um, the end of his time in Vancouver. And he basically said, the moment he approached ownership in the fall of 03, um, about getting a new deal because his deal was up in the summer of 2004, which of course was also before the lockout. He, they kind of hummed and hot. And like, by this point, you know, he'd been running a pretty successful team for six, five years by that point. Um, so he could tell that things, something was going on and it was that McCaw was talking to, well, I guess initially it was the Aquilini, BD, Gallardi group, or trio, and then just Aquilini. He's like, something's happening. I mean, he also knew there was a good chance there was going to be a lockout. But, he, you know, this was a, he could tell that this was going to be a team that was stripping down to the bone. Um, and, so, and so Burke is out because, in the end, you know, ownership wants a clear deck. So here's a bombastic, loud, opinionated hockey guy who wants to run his team with no interference and had been allowed to do so. Dave Nonis, you know, in the end, uh, you know, I think less, obviously far less bombastic, 
um, far less sort of publicly opinionated. I'm, you know, I've only talked to Dave once. In the end, seems like a pretty decent guy, kind of guy that probably shouldn't be the GM, best suited to be, you know, in the mix, maybe, uh, you know. Um, but even he stood his ground, right? Like, I mean, there's the Brad Richards story in 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 2008 that, you know, basically Francesco goes, I want this player. And he's like, no, he's old and he's breaking down and that contract's a nightmare. We're not mortgaging the future. And that basically is the end of Dave Nonis. Um, and meets Mike Gillis and leaves Gillis alone for three years, but eventually starts saying, oh, you know, basically wants to be the big swinging dick. You know, like the pro the, the, the problem with the problem with Aquilini's, you know, desire to be that is that like in the old days, if people don't know what I'm talking about, this is from Michael Smith's Liar's Poker, where you talk about big swinging dicks who were the guys who made all the money for firms on Wall Street, in, especially in the 80s. So those guys actually made a bunch of money. They'd make these bets and it would work out, you know, and, and it's not just like, there's actual effort and stuff behind it. And, and you can't just show up and say, now we're golden. And, and, you know, that I think is one of the, you know, fundamental rifts that developed between Gillis and ownership. And then Gillis was gone. And then we've had Jim Benning for seven years. And part of the reason, you know, and Trevor Linden comes in, Trevor Linden's gone because he stood up and said, no, we can't do that. We have to do this. And in the end, Jim Benning is here for se after seven years because in the end, you know, I mean, every, you know, what's, what's you know, I'm just saying every, every man has his price, right? Like he has said, I'm, I'm going to, I, I, I'm, I am comfortable with the space that I'm given from ownership and the prices that I have to sort of, and I, and in the end, whether he agrees or not is immaterial, he goes along with it, right? So, you know, that's the thing to recognize. It's not, the, not, these stories are never just about Jim Benning, right? They're about the fundamental philosophy of ownership and what they believe this team, how this team can be built and how this team can win and, and how this team should operate. And to me, that, that is, that is a, a lens that we need to understand this team with more than we do simply saying, Jim Benning, you know, whatever, you know, because it's, it's, it's so much bigger than just, Who's the GM? I, and, I, and I fully agree. What I like to say is it was a bad plan executed poorly. And it's the executed poorly part that I blame Jim Benning for. You know, there, there is ways to do right. what he's done, especially when you've now traded away, you know, essentially three first round picks, if right. you include McCann. And, you know, God knows how many second round picks. I think it's like seven or eight second round picks that we've traded an ungodly number of second round picks yeah that, that's why i ultimately blame jim benning and and unfortunately you know every single gm who's ever been hired so far has been fired it's yeah. very difficult to remove the owner as close yeah. as i think we may have gotten and i you know i referenced the you know lakers and genie bus situation which where she kicked out her brother uh you know that's of course what i was hoping for that we were getting to that fever pitch uh, last summer and that we were going to see, uh, you know, Roberto or, or Paulo or, or someone uh, who doesn't seem to think that they're a GM and th this is their fantasy hockey team that they're running. Um, but that's, so that's ultimately why I still hold Jim responsible is, is he is the one who's taken the plan and done a terrible job with it. Well, I mean, I think in the end, the expression that uh, Ray Ferraro's always uses the no plan plan and, yeah, I, you know, I mean, it, it is a plan in, in as much as, like I said before, can we make the playoffs? Yeah. And 
you know, let's try again this year. Maybe it'll work this way. Maybe, you know, it's just in the end, it's hope. It's banking on hope. <laughs> and hope's a hard plan to, to Hope's not a navigate. plan. Hope's not exactly. a plan. Exactly. Well, yeah. and, and that goes back to, I think, the relevant part of the Pedersen interview that we got yesterday. It feels like a week now, but I think it was only yesterday. Uh, to me, again, of course, stating that he wants to win is is a no-brainer, and I don't know why that's the part of uh, you know the, the quote that's gotten so much focus. Right. To me, it was the part that he wants to win every year, which, again, certainly does not happen when you were trying to just rush together a marginal playoff team each year. Yeah. Yeah. And my ultimate fear that, of course, I've had for many years now is that he is going to be pushing for that four-year deal that walks him right to UFA. And that's the part in that second part that had me a little bit concerned mm. that he made it sound like he's going to have quite a bit of say, you know, in that third contract. And to me, if he has that much say, that means he's an unrestricted free agent and deciding if he wants to stay in Vancouver or take his talents elsewhere. Well, the other spec, the other concept is he takes a three-year deal and then just accepts his qualifying offer, you know? Right. You know, he's got a lot, he's got a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of sort of power in this in this situation, you know. I mean, the Canucks are going to get him. I, they're going to get him signed. Like, there's no doubt about it. Um, but you know, I mean, in the end, it, 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 it goes a little bit with all the. I mean, it's funny thinking about what Jim Benning said to me. It goes a little bit with their kind of idea where they're they're. I mean, such as it is, they're they're pushing all their chips in again, right? Like. They're saying this is a year to go for it because, you know, first of all, they've got, they're going to have to make, they have to figure out what they're going to do with Besser, right? Um, you know, they're going to have to figure out what they're going to do with Horvat and Miller after that. Like, the, just as 20, you know, the, the end of 1920, and this is something I said then, like, in many ways, they, it's not optimal. There's not an optimal scenario to push all your chips in, but in many ways, they have to do it because they're never going to create a team that was as good as the team that was uh, the team that ended up playing in the playoff bubble um, based on sort of the, the, the matrix of player contract, you know, that they had players and contracts that they had in hand at that point. Um, and in a weird way, we're kind of back to that scenario because, you know, in the end you're, you're going to have you're not going to have a whole ton of flexibility next summer and you've got to figure out what you're going to do with Besser. Um, you know, especially because it's not like behind Jack Rathbone, it's not like, like there's this stellar defenseman coming down the pipe. They're not adding another great defenseman. They're certainly not adding another great forward at this point. They've got a bunch of bets out, but, but, or sorry, they've got a, I should, they don't have a bunch. They have a few bets, you know, at forward, but like, there's not like the spectacular internal, um, pipe, pipeline coming yeah. down, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I just want to go back a little bit to the, the Pedersen comments. I asked someone, I asked a few people around the league that I talked to, you know, what do you make of this? You know, my instinct is like basic, it's pretty simple, and it's what JP Barry and I talked about. But it's like, what's he gonna say? I want to play for a losing organization, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Like he wants to be a winner, which everyone totally. understands. But a great line that someone told me, it said, no good player wants to live, play on a losing team or one where the only tangible they offer is hope. And I was just like, that was just the best way to put it that, you know, that hope question, that idea of sort of banking on hope being your way forward, uh, being sort of your plan. And, you know. Just it, make the playoffs and anything can happen? Well, that's it. You know, I mean, like, 
It's how I mean. Let, let's be honest. It's it's sort of true, but like that's, that's it's sort of true, but also like it has its limitations too, right? It's like, it's like the people who it was like the, there was somebody in my mentions the other day. We were yesterday when I sort of mentioned Breeze Bois had resigned, and that's all I said. And I said what it was, and you know people end up arguing, and you and you're like, I just want to mute this, and then it becomes you know mute, you know like all the con the conversations. It's just like I don't need to hear any of this. But one of the ones I caught was someone saying, well, you know. Um, uh, Chris Tanev, you know, you're like, what? They're like, well, Tanev didn't become a regular until he was 24, and you're like, what? Like, how can you? <laughs> how? Like, Chris Tanev was playing like NHL minutes, like was playing NHL minutes when he was 20 in the finals, like, yeah. game like, seven, like, like they signed him. He was 19. He was playing in the AHL when he was 19. And he played in the playoffs when he was 20. Like, they trusted him enough, you know? And, yeah, okay, he spent the next parts of the next two seasons in the AHL, partly because there was a lockout. But, like, like what? He became yeah, nobody, a, you know, nobody you know, should be putting well, our He became a regular when he was 22, you know? So the idea that somehow <laughs> – and I think I mean, it, was, it was a weirdly nuanced argument. It's like, well, I don't think he's that good anyway. I think he's going to be a seven. But, you know, just worth noting. And you're like <laughs> – so. You know that that's that's like that's the kind of unicorn that you should not be saying. Well, maybe this guy's like that too. You know, like right. we did get badly served by the reality of the Sedins becoming great players in their late twenties. No one does that. And I did once ask. I mean, who was I talking to? I've, I've been. I, it's been a difficult point to try to press on management from that era. But I basically, I think I said it to Burke as well. I mean, when we look at the results they had in their late twenties. And the fact that we know that players tend to actually peak in their scoring potential in their sort of, you know, at at best late mid, late early twenties, if you will, when they're twenty three, twenty four, is there an argument to be said that you guys should have been playing the Sedins more? And it was, a, you know, one of those ones. It's a difficult kind of point to make, and it's one I'm going to try to kind of debate again, because part of the argument is essentially that the Sedins weren't ready for that, like they weren't physically ready, and I think there's a lot of bits and pieces in the middle of that that i do believe but i do think i do think it's an interesting question mm -hmm. you know would they have been better off if they just played them more when they were younger like the, the the fact that they were kind of doing this old school well you know they got to earn their ice time blah 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 um to me is an interesting question so it, it which which in the end hides the, i think the reality of them as unicorns that really what you know, so we because I guess because I look at Elias Pettersson, the amount of ice time he's gotten as a young player, right? Like, mm -hmm. what would the Sedins have done with that ice time? I guess is my is my point. At the same age, we don't know. We'll never know. Um, but like, those are your elite guys. You're allowed to compare those guys. Like, Chris Tanev was like an out of nowhere <laughs> one off stroke of success, <laughs> and like, you know, I, you know, in the end, a guy that you should be looking for those guys, absolutely, but. No, but I just mean, uh, you shouldn't bank on hope. them. There's not, yeah. and there's, yeah, you shouldn't bank on them, and they're certainly not guys that you should be, you should be comparing players for whom you have a lot of information. We have a lot of information on Guillaume Brisebois, and and to to quote someone I know, he exists. <laughs> Speaking <laughs> of the Sedins, uh, how much have or have you been able to catch wind of how involved they have actually been in personnel well, decisions? Well, they're pretty involved. So, you know, again, they're they, not being they, I don't think, I mean, it definitely wasn't, I don't think this was 
this was Jim Benning's idea. I mean, I think Jim Benning, I'm sure he has a lot of time for the Sedins, but I don't think he was sitting there going, I need the Sedins city helping me out. I think it's think clear. There's... I think this is clearly another friend of Aquilini. I mean, it's not, not a bad idea. These guys know hockey, you know, they know they, and they're not, they're not just being picked up and saying, well, you're a winner. Like they actually have a brain. They have an understanding of the game. I think they understand how they became great. Um, which is often something that top players don't understand. Um, or players with a lot of talent don't understand. Um, you know, I, I used to, when I played rugby, I realized it, but I, you know, I, when I coached rugby, it was clear too. Like there are players who have no idea why what they just did worked. There's a lot of guys like that. And then there's players who understand why the ultimate player is the player who understands, who understands why they, what they just did worked and can do it again. And then there's guys like me who can see why what he did work, but can't do it himself. <laughs> like, it just was the truth. Like, I, you know, and then yeah. there's guys who can't do it and have no idea how it happened. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was just, you know, that, that, that is, that is a reality. And, you know, that plays itself at every level of, of sport, right? Like elite, there are elite players who fall into all those categories. In, in relative terms, you know, there's there's obviously a lot of beer league players <laughs> follow, you know, into that to that that level of analysis. So, you know, I, I think the Sedins in that sense are are they're 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 elite. They could do it again, and they understood why, and that's great. And I think that's super valuable. Um, they you know they, they obviously have no experience in management, so it's good they aren't being put in the Trevor Linden position, which is you make all the choices. You have no idea how any of this works, um, you know. So, I, yeah, no, they're involved. They're absolutely involved. They're absolutely so, involved. I mean, they're like not they making have... the decisions, but it's you know, it's like, what do you guys think? You know, Bob, Bob. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm. They're being asked for their input. One question that I want to get back to um, before we close off here too is with the Pedersen and Hughes contracts. You mentioned that. Uh, obviously flexible and dependent on term that seems to be kind of the starting point of these negotiations. Are we really that far off? Like are we, we haven't even really got anything nailed down for them. Pepperson talked about the idea of playing in the sandbox. And, and I said, then I assume that means you also have to build the sandbox, you know, the <laughs> negotiations playing the sandbox. And he, he said, yeah, absolutely. And I took that to mean you got to look at what everybody else, what else has happened in the system. You know, who are your comps? I said, I said, who are your comps? He goes, well, I think you can figure that out. Like, hey. <laughs> but obviously, you know, Kale McCarr, you to say it, though. Yeah. McCarr, anybody coming off an ELC, I any of the it. top defensemen who've been coming off an ELC is a comp, I think is in, in his mind. You know, it's a fair comp. There are some right. better than others for, for Quinn Hughes. You know, same, same with, with Petey, right? Like, like, like Matt Barzell is, yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, any sort of top center that's coming off an ELC, right? Um, and then you sort of, sort of try to frame around. And and that's the parameters. And then you're trying to figure out structure and, like, you know, you know, I think once you sort of settle roughly on AAV, you're trying to figure out structure, gears, all the kind of bits and pieces like that. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, he basically said, I said, so if you could do this today, you would do it? He goes, yeah. And he goes, but it's August. He's like, I'm not worried about it. it. You know, it could run. You know, he didn't deny that it could run to training camp. You know, there's a, you know, that's kind of the final hammer. So once you start playing games, 
Um, yeah. I was just going to say, too, because... And the fact there's two of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, know? so, you, you don't really want it to get to that point. Yeah. But I know, like, I, I, with Jason Dickinson, too, I think he's kind of a, a surprising cog uh, mm-hmm. in all of this, too, is yeah. if he ends up in arbitration. I think that's fairly indicative of what the what the negotiations are like for for Patterson and Hughes if he ends up going there and not being signed earlier, where they would then know what cap they're playing with. Uh, yeah, exactly. I have, I have seen two reported. I believe it was Matt Sakaris saying like if there was you know a, a need for a trade to clear up cap space to get PD and Hughes done, then they would find a way to make it happen. I'm right. looking at the roster and I'm not seeing a lot of no. moves that could be done. Like you just signed Pearson, so you're I don't see them trading no. him. Myers, maybe? Like that's really the only one that you would get relief from. Yeah, I, I it's 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 a thought. You know, I, I I don't know who else. Mott, I suppose, although Mott, we don't know his status. I've actually been meaning to check in on him. I mean, it, it, here's the only thing I can say about Mott is that I did talk to him, like he had that concussion. And I did talk to him um, for the Masterson Trophy story because I got to write that story. So I did talk to him, and I didn't ask him about concussion because he we I think we knew by that point that's what he was dealing with. I didn't ask him about it. He seemed he seemed fine, um, but um, yeah, I mean, I I suppose he's a variable there. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm. Yeah, I'm with you. Like, I don't know, Zach McEwen. Could you possibly trade Zach McEwen? I, I just. But then, like, what relief do you get? Right, not like a lot, minimal. Right? Yeah, like, it, the, the it would be it. a difference. Yeah, of I think you're right. Into the minors and making what 150 thousand in space. Yeah, like, I, I don't think I don't think there's a terribly obvious move at this point. You know, I mean, they've got they're gonna they're committed to the Furlan LTIR stuff. Um, yeah. At this point. You know, other than that, you know, unless you could somehow get out from that, because um, that in theory gives you a little more wiggle room. Mm-hmm. If you could, if you, but then you know, you're flipping a pick to someone, right? Like that's what you're doing. So, you know, I, I think I don't, I don't see that happening, given what they seem to be very intent on, on, um, on, yeah. on, on doing and building their lineup at this point. Uh, another area that the Canucks have made quite an overhaul and splash in, it's been quite a busy summer for them, um, is on the business side. And we're right. seeing like a, a large group of, of executives leave uh, the Canucks and be replaced. Uh, is there, like how, how indicative of, the, like, trying to figure out how to phrase this the best way possible why why has there been so many leaving and what kind of follows that decision in replacing those guys that you know i thought stipic and and carol did i mean as good of job as you could really do uh pretty hard deck of cards to be dealt the last two years so i think it goes further back it's the one that surprised everyone was victor de bonus leaving because he was yeah. he's very close friends with roberto aquilini i've been told so so that was a change that caught people off guard um you know stipec i mean i think the quote um 
the quote Ed Willis had at the time was he was sick of the crazy, he was told. So, you know, I think, you know, ownership, they're, I mean, I, I, we can do it by looking at the GMs, like ownership are demanding people, um, rightly or wrongly. And, um, you know, I think that's a lot of where it comes, what it comes down to. And, and it, it's not, it's not a good look. You want stability no. there, you know? Um, some, you know, does that know, hurt their reputation, like their image throughout the league as like a destination to work for that they have this immense turnover or is this just chalked up to, I'm not sure how much the business side matters. I mean, or sorry, let me rephrase that. Most of the business side doesn't matter. I think there are bits and pieces that do matter. And, and certainly, you know, the stuff around the edges, um, it does matter. And, there, and this was, you know, I mean, I made this reference the other day in a story I wrote about uh, Pedersen's happiness, you know, his mm -hmm. reference when he was talking about and thinking back to something Lawrence Gilman once told me about, you know, something that they did in, in their era and, and was a the thing they, he, he brought with him from uh, his time in Arizona when he worked, worked uh, as in the AGM with the Coyotes. And his, he was also GM of the um, the San Antonio Rampage, who were the, the Coyotes' minor league team. And a thing he learned from there was, because the Rampage played in the Alamo Dome, which was where the Spurs play. And obviously, San Antonio is a <laughs> small West Texas city, supposed to be very beautiful. I've never been there, but people say it's actually really lovely, because I think it's partly because it's got a bit of a old sort of Mexican kind of vibe to it, old buildings. There's a river walk. Apparently the river walk is beautiful. Oh, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's not a it's not a glamorous place. And they had one of the greatest players in NBA history playing for them. And, uh, you know, Tim Duncan, by all accounts, is a lovely, pretty lovely person, good leader, um, not a kind of, uh, you know, he came, he came from, from, um, He's from St. Martin or something like he's from the Caribbean, you know, he's from nowhere. Yeah. Um, so pretty, pretty sort of humble. So that helped, but also in the end, what was a guy who wanted to win and the Spurs won five NBA titles with him in, in the lineup. And one of the focuses was on making sure that the experience in San Antonio was among the best in the league for players. So, so, you know, off, uh, off-court sort of amenities and uh, support for players and their families and, and just all these little details that, you know... Make it enjoyable to be there and be part enjoyable. of it. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I mean, the analogy I've been making, think of all of the little... The, the best boss or bosses you've ever had, think of all the little things they did for you. And then compare that with the worst bosses you've ever had, things they didn't do for you, and what that experience was like. And it, it's very much... I think a very applicable thing. And so that was something that, that, you know, the Canucks 10 years ago were deeply invested in. And, and, you know, it was, a, it was a, it was a, a selling point um, to help players. I mean, they still, it's not like they haven't had success signing players here, right? Like that's the thing that, yeah. that you do need to understand. Like Tyler Myers came here because he wanted to be here. It also helped that Tyler Myers lives in Kelowna knew the area, wanted to be nearby. Um, you know, it is got a, a big contract to do it. Yeah, <laughs> got a big contract to do it. You know, um, but but 
you know, the fact remains is that, especially this past season, was a tough season in all aspects. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that there was this core conscious decision to make to cut back on, uh, in, in, you know, essentially employees, period, full stop, um, meant that the sort of support levels, such as they were even going into COVID, and let's not forget, like 1920, before COVID settles in, like they were already on a bit of an austerity track. Um, it was one of the smallest front offices in the league. Mm-hmm. Um, they had replaced Jeff Stipek internally with Trent Carroll. Um, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was clear to me that there were bits and pieces that were still not being necessarily being taken care of. Now, I obviously haven't covered another NHL team, so, you know, I don't know in relative terms how they compare, but I do think it is in the end, you can only look at what's going on here. And there are things clearly that were, were, were being put aside. And in, in the, the COVID experience, and this is everything I've been able to gather about essentially what happened with Holtby and Schmidt. Um, was it just, it was, it was a difficult, I mean, it was a difficult year, admittedly, it was going to be difficult going in, but I don't think there was, there was a lot of effort made to sort of improve the, alleviate the experience, if you will. Where they're in a new market, new team, new city, you know, in the middle of all of this. Yeah. Like, Yeah. So I think I think at the end of the day, you know, and the Alex Edler, I mean, this is something other people point out, like Alex Edler, who never wanted to go anywhere else, is now like, I'm ready to go somewhere else. Now, was that about the money? I don't think so, but it could have been. But I think in the end, it was just kind of like, he wasn't motivated to stay, I guess, at all costs. And, you know, that was an argument that was made to the Sedins in 20, 2009, when they were set to go to free agency, like, we're not going to be able to pay you as much as you can get on the market, but we will use that money to enhance the roster. And we promise that off ice will, you know, the sort of overall experience. And you talk yeah. to the players from that era and they all say it was fantastic. It was absolutely fantastic. And a lot of that stuff, I mean, yeah. Okay. The sleep doctor stuff. I mean, that was, it was different, but it was important for them to learn teams. No more. I mean, I still think NHL teams don't take rest and recovery seriously enough because they get on planes right after the game. They, in a lot of cases, shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, the, the, the sort of attempts to deal with travel and the sort of supplementary details and, 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 and having a chef to feed the players. I mean, that was a, that was a thing that kind of was really this, you know, was a big thing. And, you know, to supply players during the day as well, not just after games. Like, that was a thing that I think, you know, was pretty revolutionary here. Um, it's not a, and it's not a, so it's not a case of pampering players. It's, it's helping them, you know, it's basically helping them become, you know, as optimal as they can be. And gives you, know, you think, an element of control too, right? Where you can kind of give them good food to, to yeah, have right. monitor their sleep, make sure right. they're getting that rest. Like, yeah, it's not to control them, but it's to give them a good yeah. environment to thrive and that you can kind of observe yeah. and, and my, make sure it's happening. And my impression is that that kind of thing, like the stuff that was in the arena was still there. Like it was good. Like they, they, the players still were well-fed and, and uh, you know, in the story I had with Antoine Roussel, he, he made a point of thanking two people. He didn't tell me who they were. He says, they'll know who they are. And my impression was that they were, they were, the, I think they were the food people. I, right. think that, I think that's literally who it was. 
Lots of maple syrup. Yeah. <laughs> I bugged him. I said, I said, I was, I was hoping, you know, when we went on the chat, I said, listen, I was hoping, you know, when you came back, I was hoping you would be back this season. So I'd finally get some maple syrup off you. And so we laughed about that. So I, I don't know, we have to get a chicken some or something. But Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, anyway. Yeah. So I, you know, I, at the end of the day, and it's something I've been harping on, like the holistic experience matters. And, you know, the record matters. The chance to win matters. Um, you know, certainly this season, offensively, they've set themselves up. Mm-hmm. But are they going to be able to defend well enough? Is Thatcher Demko going to have another strong season um, to the level they need him to be? Not just league average, but above average. Um, you know, that's kind of where it yeah. all comes down. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be an interesting year. It's been a hell of an off season already, and we're we haven't even got the Pedersen and Hughes contest yeah, yet. I know, I know. <laughs> I mean, the weird thing is, it's funny. Like, you know, it, normally we think, okay, well, there's a month to go till the season, but there's not. There's still six, seven weeks. Like, they're not yeah. playing. To, they're not playing till the end of you know, trading camps not till the end of September. So, um, you know, everything's gonna be pushed back. There's, in theory, the Olympic break. You know, if if they have that, the season's not open until the end of April, which means you know the draft is probably gets pushed back. Anyway. Yeah, it's it's going to be wild. You think uh, NHL does go to the Olympics? I don't know. I, to be honest, I'm really, really 50 50 on it. 50, I, I go 50. back and forth all the time on it. Yeah, I think the players love the experience. They want to do it. Um, certainly, I can I see why the league doesn't want to. Certainly. I mean, I mean, there was a window where, like, if they were still with NBC, I think there'd been a stronger chance because obviously NBC mm. has the Olympics in the U.S. But it's ESPN. ESPN doesn't care. In fact, in a certain level, ESPN probably like the like them not to go because then there's games they can use as programming against uh, against the Olympics. Right. Um, I think the players like the break. The players who don't go like the break. The players who get to go love the experience, um, even if it kicks their butt. Doesn't yeah. <laughs> But yeah, and the owners obviously. I think we know the owners for the most part don't want to do it. I think there's some obviously they're like it, but but from yeah, to me there's sense, there's a hundred reasons why you yeah. as an owner you'd want like you just look at the John Tavares injury, yeah, and you're like, yeah. why would I subject my best player or players yeah. to to go there and potentially get hurt overseas, yeah. not playing for me, right? Like, and then they come back and your season's destroyed, right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I don't know, and the interruption, right. of course, the schedule. But so we'll, we'll see. see. All right, man. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, uh, PJ. And uh, is there anything that you wanted to plug or share before you go? Stay safe. Wear a mask. <laughs> Get vaccinated. <laughs> Get vaccinated. Get vaccinated. Yeah. mRNA vaccines have been in development for far longer than we've had COVID. They're safe. <laughs> They're safe. That's just it. It's not. A, it's not a. It is a COVID vaccine, but it's a a development off of a pre-existing technology. So it's not how like. It, uh, how was your childhood experience with polio? That's right. You didn't get it. Do you know why? Vaccines. Thank God for that. <laughs> glad I'm glad Malcolm and Bill disappeared. No, they that. Yeah. All right. We Thanos snapped them halfway yeah. through. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, PJ. Yeah. Take care, on. Bye-bye. Allow me to introduce High Stick Vodka, a new way to celebrate victory. Gather around the glass with an award-winning, ultra-premium Canadian-made vodka. You probably won't listen 
when I say High Stick Vodka has a smooth, hard-hitting taste, or that it's developed in the birthplace of hockey. You won't listen when I say High Stick Vodka is a tribute to the game of hockey, or when I tell you it's distilled four times using Canada's purest mountain spring water to provide an authentic, remarkable flavor. But maybe you will listen when I say it comes in a f***ing hockey stick. Showcase your passion for hockey with our limited edition hand-blown hockey stick bottle. Whether you're celebrating victory or drinking to defeat, High Stick Vodka is better after every shot. Visit us at HighStickVodka.com. It also comes in this regular bottle. Celebrate victory. Drink responsibly. 